Welcome to iScanian Conversation, where we talk about cybersecurity, military defense, crisis communications, and much more with industry experts from around the globe. Stay tuned. Many government and China watchers are carefully observing what, if any, lessons China is taking from this conflict as it deals with Taiwan. It must be stressed that these are early days in the war. But as it continues, we believe that there's some really early indications on Chinese thinking as it relates to Taiwan uh, that we're going to explore in this podcast. Also, we're going to be specifically looking at disinformation campaigns as it relates to this to the Chinese conflict with Taiwan. With that, Leiden, iScan Group welcomes you to this podcast, War in Ukraine, What China is Learning. Joining me today for this podcast is iScan Senior Advisor, Yuster Yu, who has spent over 20 years in the Taiwanese Armed Forces, Ken Babin, Head of our Capabilities for Crypto, and also our Thought Leader for Operation Pluto, iScan Group's initiative to counter misinformation and disinformation, and hosting this discussion is Senior Advisor James Chow. I'm Andrew Vosco. I'm the Managing Director of the iScan Group, and with that, I'm going to hand this discussion over to James. James? Thanks, Andrew. Definitely interesting times, this uh, war in Ukraine. I'd also like to highlight the fact that these are very early days of the conflict, and, and China has always been a diligent observer of conflicts around the world, which has often guided their strategic uh, direction concerning military planning and so forth. Before moving into our discussion, I'd like to highlight a couple of points which could help guide us through it. Uh, So recently, President Xi Jinping, uh, and I believe this was at uh, at at a virtual summit with President Biden of the U.S. late last year, emphasize that uh, Taiwan independent was a red line issue uh, not to be uh, crossed. I, I think some of the some of the quotes from from that summit and from Xi Jinping were that uh, quote unquote those who play with fire will get burned and maybe that was from the, the China state media uh, that made that statement but essentially there's a lot of Chinese nationalist rhetoric uh, that has been heightened through the last decade, I think we could say, uh, that figures into this discussion. So in addition to this, in the U.S., late last year, there was a U.S. Department of Defense China military report to Congress, which highlighted the surge in military capability of China for example, having uh, 700 deliverable nuclear missiles by 2027 could be about 1,000 by 2030, according to this Pentagon report. Um, and, and one quote from the report talks about the great rejuvenation of the China nation uh, by 2049, which is one of Beijing's Uh, top strategies. And 2049 would be the 100th anniversary of communist rule in China. So as we talk through this, you know, one key question is what's been China's role in Russian information and disinformation campaigns during this war? I think Kent can 
can speak to that, and we look forward to the discussion there. But let's start with what China has been able to learn from this conflict so far and start with Euster. Uh, Euster, what are your initial thoughts on what China might be taking away from this conflict? All right. Thank you, James. I think first and foremost uh, would be the Biden administration's resistance to get directly involved in an armed conflict with, with Russia. This uh, would include the rejection of Poland's proposal to transfer their MiG-29 fighters to Ukraine through the United States and the refusal to set up a no-fly zone over the Ukrainian airspace. Uh, I think Biden and his advisors and generals try very hard to avoid any chance of getting into military conflict uh, with the Russians. A recent article by the Brookings Institution cited surveys that indicate this is also what the majority of American people wanted. So I'm pretty sure um, China is looking at this as a, a signal that they, they can pick up. Uh, in addition, uh, I believe that Chinese leaders uh, must also have taken notes on how the Russian military ran into uh, difficulties in C2, command and control, and logistics when they enter into extended period of military operation. As we know that China's plan and what Taiwan war games for a successful invasion of Taiwan is uh, predicated upon China's ability to achieve air superiority or the dominance of the airspace. Uh, they must also have noticed that the Russians have so far failed to do that and we'll try to find out why and how to avoid that same situation. And one last point, uh, what is absent in this conflict so far is probably just as, as important as what we see. When we students of strategy think about hybrid warfare, it is almost impossible not to mention the Russian general uh, Valery uh, Garisimo. And a Chinese general also published a paper advocating similar concepts called the Unrestricted Warfare, or Chaoxianzhan in Chinese. Therefore, it's curious that we have not seen this concept in action, or at least not effective enough for us to notice. Uh, does it mean, first, having someone Writing about a concept doesn't mean it will be adopted into the doctrine, training, and actual implementation. Or uh, secondly, uh, maybe there's attempts to use those measures, uh, but it just did not work out uh, as, as well as they hoped. That was my initial thoughts. Thank you, James. Thanks, uh, Euster. On that last point, and I, I have a few follow-ups on this, but since we're talking about unrestricted warfare, could you expand on that? What is that? And what did we see or not see on the part of the Russians in respect to unrestricted warfare? Well, unrestricted warfare, uh, basically, the, the writer was advocating 
that for war you you must use uh, a modern wars. Uh, your your means uh, do not limit to traditional military power tools uh, and troops uh, anymore. Uh, you want to use uh, the media warfare. You want to try legal international relations, uh, information warfare, and uh, uh, disinformation apparently, and cyber warfare all combined to create an advantageous situation for you in, in, in any conflict. And that, that's very similar to uh, General Gerasimo's uh, uh, hybrid warfare concept in which he asserted that um, in future warfare, the non-military part uh, to the military part, the ratio uh, should be four to one. But apparently we're not seeing it right now in the conflict of Ukraine. I see. Yeah, I wonder about that in terms of, as we've, we've all seen the lack of um, use of potentially all the tools that are at the disposal of uh, of the Russian armed forces. And I, I do wonder if that's the result of, you know, maybe they thought this would be a little easier and didn't need to bring to bear all of those uh, elements. Um, so maybe that factored into it. But the on the other hand, uh, in when the Russians attacked Georgia back in 2008, they, they did that, they, they did successfully use a, a a lot of cyber operations uh, in, in that conflict too, but uh, and that that's why it's curious that we have not seen uh, at least uh, effective enough for us to notice. Well, just on that point, uh, I, I think, and, and no offense to the Georgians, but I think from a cyber cyber perspective, the Ukrainians are a far greater match, right? For uh, in both in terms of defense and offense, and we've seen Ukraine. Or Ukrainian cyber warfare, in in, in terms of in, um, hacking Russian state television to portray uh, various stories and, and and newspaper sites and things, uh, denial of service attacks, and and just far more disruption, I think, than the the Georgians at the time in 2008 could have um, you know had the ability to do, and, and so I think yeah, Russia is definitely. Uh, meeting its match and is realizing that cyber warfare is much, much easier when you're doing it against people that aren't as prepared for it and aren't as skilled at it. I agree with Kent. And what is also important to point out was that the Russians actually have attempted to attack uh, Ukraine back in uh, 2015 and 2017 that caused uh, massive blackouts. In, the, in, in Ukraine. And I, I suppose that afterwards, uh, Ukrainians had gotten much better prepared to uh, counter that kind of threat. So the adversary, certainly in this case, is, you know, quite, has quite a lot of capabilities. And, and Euster, you brought this up in terms of uh, how this has been challenging to, to Russia's C2 command and control in extended operations, they, they haven't been able to make it happen. You know, one question that I had about that is how extended have these operations been, really? I mean, it's it's been four to six weeks, I think. You know, I mean, this is a country, Ukraine, that, that's, that borders Russia, so they didn't have to go far to, to fight, uh, yet 
they've been challenged so much. Why, how, how did this happen? Why is this? My answer is I, I simply do not have information, enough information to give a uh, correct, uh, to, be a, to have a very uh, comfortable, uh, confident answer to that question. But I, I guess you can say that uh, Russia has, since the end of Cold War, have not really engaged in a sort of extended uh, armed conflict in, in, in any place. And I guess the lack of experience that they never had a real situation to test uh, whether their logistics are, are, are good enough, whether it, it would stand the test of a real fighting situation for over weeks or months. Unlike the United States, they've been always in in, in armed, armed conflict situations uh, all the time, and they get uh, get the experience and get to improve upon. And one other thing is, in a authoritarian regime, the people tend not to reveal the shortcomings to their leaders because they fear that would get them into trouble. I guess that might be one of the reasons. Yeah, and on that point, you sort of, it's a great point because it, it would seem to me anyway that the uh, certain Chinese political elites are looking at the cult of personality and the quote-unquote personalism of the Putin regime in Russia and saying, if we head down that road, right, this is the result. People too afraid to tell the truth. It, it's difficult for me to believe, for example, that the intelligence, Russian intelligence coming out of Ukraine did not suggest that this was a terrible idea, given that, given the pro, the anti-Russian sentiment in the country and, and the seeming willingness to fight, was it just a matter of, of you know, Russian intelligence being too afraid to, to tell Putin the truth and ultimately try to convince him otherwise? And, and we see this, right, in, as, as autocrats become despots and that and surround themselves with a very tight inner circle but ultimately a culture of fear. And if uh, she gets to that point where he becomes such a, a personal leader that the, the Chinese government becomes about him and Chinese policy becomes about him, would we not see sim a similar culture of fear forming around him where he starts making decisions that could ultimately be existential threats to, uh, to China? But I would also like to ask you a question. So Chinese, the Chinese military is looking at the Russian military's uh, operations and saying, you know, hmm, this is the army that we war game against. It's the only army we can really uh, drill with or train with. And and how much are they lo looking at themselves in the mirror and going, wait, maybe we should look a lot more closely at how, we, how we're training officers and how we're reforming our tactics and so on and so forth, knowing that the way they've been doing it before may not be good enough uh, if they were to invade Taiwan. Right. I, I think... For many decades, uh, they do they, they did model after the Russian armed forces. But I believe that after the first Persian Gulf War, uh, the Chinese uh, military leaders and political leaders started to realize that by, by looking at the uh, astonishing victory of the uh, allies led by the United States armed forces, they started to realize that 
that may not be the way to go if they want to build a a uh, world class uh, war fighting machine. So I, after the first Gulf War, we started to see many writings of the Chinese um, military writings about how to learn from the experience of, of the first Gulf War. And they actually adopted a lot of the writings and, and concepts of the U.S. writings. Uh, for example, the uh, Revolution in Military Affairs, uh, they translated into uh, which in, means that new military revolutions. And they started to write about uh, the, the training, uh, join us. They started talking about join us. They started to emphasize join us and information, connectiveness, all came from, uh, all based on the post Gulf War U.S. writings, and they expanded on it and tried to uh, uh, try to absorb it into their military modernization effort. You do wonder how, and Ken, great question on this, on, on what potential lessons China may be learning from a, a military tactics uh, perspective. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, when you ask that question, I'm reminded of, a, of an article in the New York Times from late January of this year which was entitled, Russia's military, once creaky, is modern and lethal. This is January 27th, 2022. And it, it's got, you know, a great quote, which, you know, you wonder how much has been learned um, and how much hasn't been learned. You know, one, one of the quotes from this article is, Russia used its war in Syria as a laboratory to refine tactics and weaponry and to gain combat experience for much of its force. More responsibility was delegated to lower level officers, a degree of autonomy that contrasts with the civilian government structure in the Putin era. And it goes on about, you know, got great equipment, everybody's motivated, they're paid well, this is what you wanna do if you're, if you're young and want to serve in Russia is be part of their armed forces. Have, Euster, have we seen, I mean, basically the opposite of this, or have we yet to see, you know, we're six weeks in? Yeah, I think you're right. That's a lot of it that at least from what we can see is just the, the opposite of what was just described in that, from that article. Uh, especially um, evident was the a delegation of, of low-level officers. Uh, as I, th I think I watched a, a interview of uh, General Petraeus, in, in which they the reporter asked him why the Ukrainians were able to pick off the Russian generals one by one, and he pointed out that it was because when the communications command and control broke down, the people, the, the officers on site did not know what to do. They, they were sitting there waiting for instructions and some junior generals has to come out to see what's going on and try to direct the operation. And that's when the Ukrainian snipers had the opportunity to take them out. So, so back to China then in this context, uh, so they learned a lot from 
the U.S. performance in the Persian Gulf War, probably from the other the wars that followed it in uh, Afghanistan and the second part of Iraq. What's your sense on what might change in the Chinese military? Well, first, I guess first we should back up. How is the Chinese military structured? Is it is it modeled after the Soviet system, the the, the Russian system? Well, I think they they begin to make uh, a lot of changes trying to moving toward the Western system, uh, especially that of the United States. For the first few decades, apparently it's entirely modeled after the Russian system, army dominant and and very traditional, manpower heavy, uh, no talk about joiners, not emphasizing uh, doctrine and delegation to uh, lower echelon. But at least from their writings, uh, we've noticed that they have, uh, they're trying, from the writings, it looks like they're trying to learn from uh, how the U.S. forces were able to be so effective. But in reality, how much of that is actually implemented and took root in their culture and their uh, real combat capabilities we, I simply do not know yet. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in my example of the hybrid warfare, uh, the Russians were supposed to be the leader, to, to be one of the lead earlier advocates of hybrid warfare. But in this conflict, it, they just did not, did not show up. So we don't know. Maybe writing about it is one thing, but changing the culture, especially in the uh, Confucians' uh, uh, religion-dominated uh, society, where seniority means everything, uh, perhaps it's the most dif- difficult part in trying to transform the military uh, would be the delegation and the encouragement of the lower echelon to take initiatives and take risks. Yeah, a lot to a lot to ponder over in terms of um, China's military capability, its ability, for example, to you know conduct an, an probably an amphibious operation to to take Taiwan. It would be of, of a scale that probably had not seen in terms of an amphibious operation since, you know, World War II, probably. A lot to discuss there. Kent, any follow-up to what Euster has discussed? Well, I mean, it just strikes me uh, that the perception of the Russian military prior to the invasion was perhaps similar to that of the perception of the French army prior to the, uh, you know, the German army invasion in World War II, in which France's army was considered the strongest in the world at the time. And then suddenly they had basically zero defense, right, when the German army came through. So I, I wonder just how a information that the propagation of information plays a role in, you know, if you take photos of things that look nice and showing soldiers in, in certain I don't know, poses and you have these military parades and things and you create the perception that your army is really strong. But in reality, if you haven't fought any sort of large scale war since 
I think, you know, the 70, late 70s, you know, early 80s in Afghanistan, it's very difficult to understand just how your, your rank and file soldier was, is going to do. And then the other thing is that this, uh, these, these Russian paratroopers, this, this famed uh, group of these really strong, very recognizable men that have a legend created around them in which they uh, are seen as um, you know, indestructible. And they get sent in, they were sent in, I think, in, in Czechoslovakia in uh, 1968 and in, in Hungary in 56 and in other conflicts since then. And it seems that they have failed when going against an organized fighting force and have succeeded when going against an unorganized fighting force. And, and so this, this the information being propagated and legends being built around these, these two entities really have us in, in, in the West and in other countries falling for this belief that, oh, yes, Russia's this great, strong and well-prepared force that is just going to walk you know, all over any country that it gets involved in. And, and I think it, it's something where, yeah, we, we don't have enough information to make a, an accurate decision one way or the other. So we kind of just, you know, believe, tacitly believe what the New York Times says or what, uh, you know, the BBC says. And that's, that's on us, right, to rectify going forward is that we put a little bit more effort into understanding the reality before we, uh, we make judgments especially journalists. Yeah, I think you're exactly, you're exactly right, Kent. Uh, you know, it is a difficult thing to assess, but perhaps, you know, we collectively didn't really spend that much time looking at it. You know, one, I mean, there's, there's, a, there are so many uh, examples of this. Uh, there's, there's another example of, of, you know, what people thought of President Zelensky before the conflict. And, and there was a New York Times op-ed started quote the New York Times so much, but the title of it was, this is in February 21st before the invasion, and the title was, The Comedian Turned President is Seriously in Over His Head. And one quote from it, it's a, it's a gravely serious situation. And Mr. Zelensky, a comedian for most of his life, is in over his head. So this didn't age well, um, just like the other non-op-ed piece of... Uh, Russian military capability is, um, you know, one one last point I'd like to make about, you know, Ken, let's look at the economic angle here, the self-sufficiency of Russia's economy or lack of, as we have seen, brings up the question of how China might fare if faced with sanctions. So how would the China, how would China's economy do uh, in such a situation of, of sanctions, and how would things like the digital yuan or or crypto factor into this? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question, uh, and I think it's one that is being debated, uh, you know, in the Chinese government. Is it ready to withstand you know, severe economic sanctions like we've seen with Russia? And uh, in some respects, I mean, the answer is probably yes, it is ready. I mentioned uh, semiconductors being one potential issue, but the key point here, and I think where Russia is really um, finding it difficult, is the, la the being cut off from the international financial system, uh, particularly SWIFT, the, the you know bank settlement system, international money transfer system. 
and just also in with trade and so on. So China has launched this, uh, or at least not not quite yet anyway, but they're piloting this this digital yuan, this cryptocurrency, blockchain based uh, digital currency, which they hope will provide it with insights around money flows within the Chinese economy. So you know, just quick on what on what blockchain allows. So a, a cryptocurrency or digital currency issued on a blockchain allows you to track all of the movements of that cryptocurrency. So you know where it's going, how much. Uh, and, and this is something that the Chinese government and, and any government really doesn't have access to. They can't get that fine grain level of transparency around money flows. And, and given the uh, the Chinese approach to uh, economics, this is uh, very, very valuable in terms of making uh, economic and monetary de uh, policy decisions. So that's kind of a, the, the pro side of it from the government perspective. But on the other side, you have this potential for a massive, massive invasion of privacy in which suddenly every citizen that is using this, and currently it's, a, it's approximately 300 million people uh, have... Uh, wallets that allow them to in, to transact in in the digital yuan is now if you if the government knows everything you spend money on and, and in a way they do through you know money at uh, these um, WeChat and and that and and bank uh, card transfers and bank transfers but they have to go through the banks to get in for that information with the digital yuan they're going to have it immediately and so we look at for example the spending activity of dissidents and other you know anti government activists and how this might allow the government to really clamp down on that. You know, it's definitely a potential pitfall for Chinese citizens. But I think, you know, given what we've seen in, in Ukraine and, and the response by the West and the sanctions on Russia is that this project, this Digital One project, has the potential to be the foundation for an alternative international financial system. So blockchains allow you to be quite open in terms of allowing... Um, potentially other countries to integrate with you, creates a sense a sort of interoperability between countries. So you can imagine a situation where China and India and Russia and um, I don't know, Iran maybe could all kind of join forces and use the Chinese, the fundamental Chinese uh, system, the digital yuan system in order to facilitate international um, settlement, uh, transfers, settlements, and uh, in, if these countries have their own digital currency, then there could be some interoperability there as well. So, again, if sanctions were to be put in place, whether because China is directly supporting Russia or because China decides to invade Taiwan, they would be able to not have to rely on the international financial system and the U.S. dollar in order to send money or send value around and, and, and for example, accept payments in natural gas because their currency you know, it's far more um, sheltered from external attack uh, than uh, than Russia's was. Uh, now, of course, uh, other aspects of China's uh, monetary and economic economic policy factor into this. It isn't just the existence of the digital yuan that's going to help them evade sanctions. But what we do see is that there are members of the U.S. government, uh, a senator in particular who's uh, suggesting that the digital yuan has always been about sanctions evasion. And then really it should be considered a threat to U.S. security, its existence in itself. And, and that if the U.S. government doesn't do something about this, whether that be to take the leadership role in crypto and cryptocurrency 
or um, you know, kind of fight back against uh, the digital yuan, that China, you know, in five to ten years is going to have a massive advantage and basically allow it to do anything without really fearing uh, any sort of financial sanction. That's fascinating. I I could see uh, the various angles where this could be effective. Uh, pricing oil and digital yuan, as an example, um, would would make things uh, much harder to. Um, stop or circumvent if China were under a sanctions regime. Uh, it does sound like an area which uh, we could discuss for much longer. So thanks, Kent, uh, on that. The reason why some of the great militaries of the world, I, I assume, are very good is because of their domestic uh, economy besides their military that, that can feed innovation and so forth and just supply necessary material to uh to the military also, and, and china certainly has that can i also point out one major difference in um, u.s uh military because i went to military school there and what i see in uh, this part of the of the world is that the americans tend to be willing to admit mistake and what I, when I first learned how thoroughly and how straightforwardly the um, uh, U.S. military conducted after-action reviews, I was shocked uh, uh, because in this part of the world, you, you, you just simply don't criticize other people. And if you make, make a mistake, uh, try to hide it as much as possible and then and work it out or not uh, in the future time. So I think back to your point when the United States was not, did not have much experience after the Pearl Harbor and it quickly were able to fight and, and win the war. A, a lot of it was they, the U.S. military can learn quickly from mistakes. They're, they're not afraid to admit mistakes and change and to do better next time. But that is uh, certainly not the culture on this part of the world. That's fascinating, Euster, uh, in terms of you know, the, the learning cycle and the difference as well as the seniority issue uh, that you see. So in terms of China then, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the beginning, about their nuclear expansion. You start, do, you, do you see that as a signal or a development that they are preparing for conflict? What, what is this signal? Anything? Uh, I believe it is a signal. Uh, apparently, uh, I don't think China has the intention to launch preemptive strike against the United States with nuclear weapons. So it, it, is, it is a signal is it a deterrence on a strategic level to warn the United States not to interfere with them? And this part, along with the A2AD, uh, which is anti-access area denial capabilities on the operational level, one is strategic level, this operational level, uh, together, they would. Uh, they hope that that would be able to let the uh, United States understand that 
in the next Taiwan Strait crisis, it won't be anything like the previous one in 1996. Sending two aircraft carrier battle groups simply won't be enough to deter them. And you will simply put them in harm's way. So China's looking at the Western response and they're, they're looking and potentially thinking, hey, the West isn't doing as much as it could knowing that Russia has a significant uh, you know, nuclear capacity. And, and are they thinking, you know, we need to build up our own in order to create the same type of deterrence? I mean, is that, is that kind of uh, what you're getting at in a way? I would think the nuclear program uh, would have been on, already on the way and they're building their armed forces as a whole. Everything is, is growing. Uh, but in, in terms of uh, deterring uh, the United States, well, it, we look at the Vietnam War back in 1965. China had very limited uh, nuclear deterrence capability, but that was enough to complicate uh, U.S. calculations, U.S. calculus in, in terms of whether to go into North Vietnam to, to bomb North Vietnam or not, or send troops in, into North Vietnam. So uh, I think uh, it, it's, it's strengthening, it's, it's enhancing that signal, that deterrence. But I, I think it's already enough there. I think it's already in the back of the minds of many uh, U.S. decision makers that even with today or maybe five, ten years ago, there's enough uh, nuclear, uh, deliverable nuclear weapons that can strike us. That, that's why for a long time there's this talk about would you sacrifice, would you trade Los Angeles for Taiwan? So it, it has been there, that kind of deterrence, that kind of signal has been there for a long time. Focusing then on Taiwan, uh, Easter and, and Kent, you know, internet activity uh, on this subject is, is pushing the narrative that Taiwanese wouldn't step up and fight. And thus, you know, en any morning attack would be done by the afternoon. Easter, maybe you could start with this. Is, is this disinformation? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm sure uh, a large portion of it is China's uh, disinformation campaign to discourage the Taiwanese uh, to think that uh, they can fight and sustain the fight like the Ukrainians. Uh, I, I have no doubt about it. They've been doing the disinformation operation in Taiwan for such a long time. But uh, I also want to mention that, uh, on the other hand, uh, the population as a whole in Taiwan, uh, for them, the confidence in Taiwan military's capability to, to fight and defend uh, ourselves ha has not been very high, uh, at least for, the, for a long time, maybe decades. So I would say that it is possible that some of the pessimism is not directly resulted from the Chinese disinformation. Yeah, I mean, if anything, so, Chinese disinformation is is just 
enhancing or, or you know, entrenching a fundamental belief already. Uh, it's just, yeah, providing that con- almost like confirmation bias in a way. People are go- more likely to believe Chinese disinformation if they already think what the Chinese disinformation is saying. So, you know, in, in some ways it could be a smart play. Uh, a smart dis- disinformation campaign to to use that confirmation bias, knowing it'll be shared, knowing that this information will be shared around social media and, and that, but also potentially missing the point in terms of nationalism. It's like, yes, you may not have faith in your armed forces, but as we've seen in Ukraine, people are willing to line up and 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 volunteer essentially to to fight. So, used to, I mean. Don't mean to cut in, James, but like, what uh, what do you get? Do you get the sense that the people themselves have a different opinion of their own ability to, or willingness to to stand up and fight, or are they just relying on the military itself? Uh, There's a conflicting uh, message uh, coming out uh, post the, uh, the 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 dawn of the Ukrainian crisis. There's a small group of people, my good friend, uh, who is organizing people and train them uh, during weekends to provide, at least starting with medical assistance uh, for the wounded during a armed conflict. Uh, That's that's that. And then their their proposal to change the obligations of military training from uh, currently uh, four months uh, to one year, but the politicians and the decision makers are still uh, studying uh, the issue, not willing to give a, a firm answer uh, or indication of their attitude on that, possibly because of the coming election. They don't know which way it'll go. So that that's the case. But also, uh, you see uh, a lot of uh, uh, YouTube interviews that uh, a lot of young people were were saying that, uh, no, we, I, we simply don't think uh, we can win, so why fight? Uh, just try everything to avoid conflict. The uh, footage coming out of Ukraine uh, was uh, miserable, atrocious. Uh, we, we don't want Taiwanese people to suffer like that. So, no, there's no unanimous uh, answer, unanimous attitude on that as probably as uh, any other society in the world. Yeah, sounds like the, you know, we wouldn't really know until, until if, if something were to happen what the overall reaction would be. And I, and I think much in the case of Ukraine, we probably didn't really know the, the reaction of the Ukrainian people and military um, and effectiveness uh, until we saw bullets flying. Um, so, so good points, Kent uh, and Euster. So something we have covered in previous podcasts and I'd like to cover it here, are what are the key disinformation takeaways from this conflict uh, so far and what should we be concerned about? And maybe, Kent, you could start off with this one as as a kind of final part of the the discussion. Sure, yeah. So I think one of the primary takeaways anyway is just 
the sheer glut of information that is being propagated, disseminated by media, on social media, through Telegram groups, WhatsApp, Signal, all these messaging apps. And it really makes it difficult to, to really discern what's fact, what's fiction, what happened in Ukraine now in, in, in today's day, as opposed to some historical misrepresentation or a deep fake, as we saw Putin with, you know, with his meeting, supposed meeting with flight attendants. And we've seen all sorts of misrepresentation and historical imagery also being used to try to push a certain narrative. And really, are, we do not as humans have the ability to withstand this onslaught of information. We, we tend to believe information that supports what we already believe to be true, then confirmation bias, when somebody who already believes that neo-Nazis are the problem in Ukraine gets a video suggesting that neo-Nazis have perpetrated some attack on, on a school or what have you, they're very likely to believe that and share it, right? And, and so this has been the strategy of, uh, of Russia is to just flood the the marketplace so to speak with information and give people information fatigue and just confuse them in general and and then now we just we don't even know what to believe and and this means that, that journalists and uh journalist organizations have uh, play a very important role because they have people on the ground they have the ability to uh, verify we see certain personalities on twitter as well so who your sources are uh, tend to be very important, but even then, that's that's not cut and dry. The, the second one is uh, that Russian disinformation campaigns don't seem to have been very successful uh, prior to the invasion. So they had been, uh, you know, beaming uh, in like media uh, media articles and other social media uh, posts about how you know russia needs to save them from de or denazify them or save them from the woke army and you know this uh hasn't really got any fertile ground in the country like given the 2014 invasion and, and the crimean annexation they there's been so much anti-russian sentiment in the ukraine that it's hard to imagine that any any disinformation campaigns conducted by Russia in you know over the prece uh, preceding seven or eight years would have any impact. Maybe fringe areas, but really nothing that is uh, going to portray the invader the invaders as liberators, right? As they had originally hoped. And we also see that they, these campaigns haven't really worked in neighboring states, uh, in, in places like Poland and uh, Romania and Moldova. That they. they also haven't been able to really portray Russia in a positive light, given the historical significance of Russia vis-a-vis -vis these countries. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost impossible, right, aside from these very uh, fringe groups. And, and finally, I'll say that uh, these disinformation campaigns that have been conducted during the, the war, things like the biological weapons labs that are you know, run by the U.S. and Ukraine or Ukrainian neo-Nazis uh, allegedly bombing uh, a children's hospital or, or President Zelensky being manipulated by George Soros. These types of things have found, have resonated with the supporters of the invasion, people that were already in sports. So whether they are Russians in Russia or, um, you know, people in the United States who already uh, sympathize or, or at least support Russia in, in their in their war, 
but haven't these campaigns haven't had any success, right? In fact, it's made it's made them look silly trying to propagate these things that seem so outlandish that they only resonate with conspiracy theorists. And and that's perhaps a miscalculation on their part. But um, but clearly it all kind of boils down to just, yeah, flood the information, flood the space with information and and hope that you either draw attention away from what you're doing or just simply confuse people uh, over the long term. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, the information overload, Kent, that you mentioned, information and disinformation overload, does seem to have the effect of making one retreat into the original corner that you were in with your original beliefs that you always believed in, and perhaps just reinforced it if you had one uh, opinion or the other. And the second thing that I was thinking about as you spoke was you know, how much of an effect would a, a disinformation campaign have if, if you had a much longer time frame to work with? You know, if you're sitting in, in Russia and you're assigned this project, let's say from the information ministry or whatever organization would take care of this, and they said, you got you to gotta get this done in, in six weeks. Um, you know, like six weeks, I, I need two decades to affect this type of opinion change. I mean, this is all pretty short term, what they've done, I, I guess. Well, in some respects, yes, but, uh, but I think in the, the, the scope of Soviet and then Russian disinformation was very long term, very much not surgical in their approach in the sense that they're not necessarily looking to change opinion about a specific topic at a specific time. Yes, we saw you know the, the US election in 2016 or, or the Brexit referendum. That was a more surgical approach. But we're talking about these long-term goals, which is ultimately just to create divisions within these, like let's say, Western societies in this case, whether it be Canada, the US, or the UK, or France. Um, you know, in some respects, they have been successful, but what they haven't been able to do is convince people that war crimes are acceptable, right? And, and, and once you start crossing, like you lose the moral high ground, it doesn't matter what, your, what disinformation ca- campaigns you have run or will run or are running or will run, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to justify. And, and yes, you can try to blame it on the other side. Uh, you can try to confuse, you can try to do all of these things, but, you know, your actions and behavior on the battlefield can't undermine your disinformation campaigns. And and you just, you lose the ability to convince people once you are, you know, are bombing train stations and, and you know, theaters and things like that. So I... Yeah, I, I think they have. So, so basically, just to sum it up, I mean, yes, there's been a long-term scope, and yes, they have achieved some success, but really, they haven't been able to overcome all of the negative atrocities that they are committing, and and that there is no way. I don't. I'm not sure there is a disinforma- disinformation campaign out there that would overcome that. Right? I mean, it, it seems it seems untenable. All great points, Kent. Yeah, this is uh, once you, well, if they ever had the moral high ground, but they, they, they've lost it if they, they ever have. And, and 
gone completely opposite in terms of overall opinion and it's it's hard to to get out of it so so as we as we wrap up here i'd like to give Euster the last word on on the on the issue of key information or key disinformation takeaways from this uh from this conflict instead of uh my comment i actually would like to ask kent a question for his comment in the current case, in the Ukraine case, uh, both sides uh, have access to unfettered internet access, uh, so they can uh, both sides can engage in this uh, information campaign. Let's say in uh, future Taiwan situation, where the the Chinese were able to cut off the underwater cables. Uh, to deny Taiwan's information outflows, what kind of disadvantage would, would you think uh, would put Taiwan in uh, in terms of uh, uh, dis- information or disinformation campaign? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I would expect that, as we saw in, in Ukraine, uh, I believe it was Elon Musk that uh, with Starlink, you know, delivered hundreds, if not thousands of... Uh, of terminals to try to bring internet to places in Ukraine that had it had it been where it had been cut off, and I expect the same type of response. I mean, in terms of just a protecting these cables would be I, I assume strategically important both by Taiwan and by its allies. And then yes, there would be uh, an alternative, whether it's Starlink or, or, or other satellite internet. But if in the case that. Taiwan does lose access, it would be a very much a disadvantage because the Taiwan story, right, the, the Taiwan's perspective, the potential atrocities that may be, be committed, the, the destruction of cities, and that the daily life, the struggle may not get out. And if all, as we've seen in, in Russia itself and China as well, um, where the Russian narrative is the predominant narrative, it's the only one being seen that has the potential to sway people that are not so much, you know, they're not, they don't have skin in the game. They don't have, they, it's one of the many things that's going on in their lives, you know, in places, far flung places, perhaps in India or Brazil or, or, or other countries like that, where, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a potential, you know, global conflict, but it's not, it's not so important to day-to-day life. So in places like that, if all they're seeing is the Chinese perspective, right, again, getting the Chinese narrative, that might be the prevailing opinion that most that people have, they, they, because it's just, they're not going to do the additional research required to understand, to get an objective view uh, of the situation. So yeah, I mean, in this information battle, I mean, you have to be able to get your side out. And if you're not getting, if your narrative is not being pushed as well, you're definitely at a disadvantage. And and we've seen, just to, to make one final point, is that Russia's using China and China's media power, uh, social media influence, and so on to, to actually push out its own narratives because Russian media has been blocked in Europe and in, in other places where, uh, and bot farms are being shut down and, and there's a deliberate attempt to stop the Russian narrative from being uh, disseminated. So instead it, it goes through China and this narrative is now being pushed out. So. You know, you, Taiwan may find another way. The U.S. obviously would probably help uh, in getting that narrative out, but it's very much clear that you need at the at times like that you need a friend that is willing to uh, to tell your story. 
great question, Euster, and and I'm I'm glad you you asked it. And uh, thanks for the insight on that, Ken. I'd like to thank both of you. Great discussion today on this subject. Look forward to uh, speaking with both of you, Kent and, and Euster, uh, next time. Thanks a lot, James. Appreciate it. Thanks, Euster. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to iScan in Conversation. If you want to know more about today's topic, check out iScanGroup.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and hit the subscribe button.